Good afternoon and happy Wednesday to you. Busy show today, but starting off, we are talking about the Surrey Police Service and the future of policing in service in Surrey. Joining me on the line now is Norm Lipinski, who is the chief of the Surrey Police Service. Chief Lipinski, thank you so much for taking some time today. You're welcome. Uh, We haven't heard a lot from you or from the service since the recommendation came from the province. We heard from the mayor of Surrey that she is staying or plans to stay with the RCMP. You've now released this open letter that's addressed to both council and residents. Why put the letter out now? Well, as a, as a police organization, I like to stay on the sidelines uh, outside the politics. So there was processes in place. We, of course, uh, looking back way in December, we submitted the reports. We submitted supplemental reports. Uh, last month, the province came up with a strong recommendation to uh, go ahead with the Surrey Police Service. And now we seem to have uh, slowed down and paused on this. I know that things are working in the background. There's this issue of redaction, unredaction, and uh, reviewing the reports. But uh, I think what's really important here, and sometimes it gets lost in the processes, is the human factor. I have uh, 400 employees, and uh, their future is uncertain. I think it's fair to say there is an element of frustration uh, in the organization as well as uh, the RCMP and uh, even the other levels of government. It's just a slow process. Everybody's got a little bit of a different timeline as far as decision-making is concerned. But uh, we would like to see this uh, to move forward in a timely fashion. Uh, It's kind of open-ended right now, and there has to be reviews undertaken. Totally understandable, and finances is very, very important. But uh, there doesn't uh, seem to be that, uh, that objective or that diary date of when this will be Uh, looked at or voted upon. Uh, You mentioned the the cloud of uncertainty and in the letter it talks about that the organization, the employees under a cloud of uncertainty. It also says that the individuals who work in policing in Surrey are increasingly distracted by worries about their futures. Is that having an impact on how they are doing their jobs? I think it's fair to say that there's a lot weighing on their shoulders, um, and you can just put yourself in their shoes. Some of these people came from other provinces in good faith that they would be joining a police service, and uh, now it it's, uh, goes on and on and on, and uh, it's an uncertain future. And uh, there's, there's a doubt of what they should do. One can appreciate the distraction from being focused on your work when the uh, call comes in. Yes, the job gets done, but it does weigh heavily, not only on the police officers, but their family and extended family of uh, what the future may hold for them. Has anyone left the, the Surrey Police Service, that you, uh, to your knowledge, because of the uncertainty? Yes, since the uh, beginning of the SPS two and a half years ago, uh, we had uh, 2.7% of the staff leave, and it was uh, ostensibly for that reason, multifactorial, but a huge, huge reason was uh, the uncertainty. And uh, so that is concerning for me as a chief, of course, and uh, they either went back to their home agency or went to another agency where there is certainty. And uh, we need to look at the future of uh, where we're going and how soon we can get there. And I'm suggesting a timely 
um, I'll say, diary dates as far as when we can get a conclusion on this matter. And a conclusion, so a, a date that a final decision, even if that decision was uh, the, the mayor uh, finding a way to stay with the RCMP, at least giving that kind of certainty on a specific date? Yes. Uh, we must keep in mind, though, that the province is ultimately in charge of policing. And so the uh, mayor and council uh, can certainly choose their model of policing, which they did. But as, uh, as you may know, there was conditions that were imposed by the province that if SPS goes ahead, then have to abide by these conditions. And one of them was a staffing plan that would extend to three years. And then on the RCMP side, uh, conditions have to be met uh, in order to ensure adequate and effective policing. And we know that uh, one of the conditions was not borrowing, I should say borrowing, but actually taking from other detachments to staff Surrey. So all that's still in play, and uh, you can appreciate that there's some timelines associated with all of that. Oh, absolutely. Have you had any discussions or meetings with Mayor Locke since this decision from the province and since that, that she spoke on that day? Yes, absolutely. Uh, she chairs our police board meeting. We had a police board meeting last night, and uh, we dealt with some issues uh, with respect to the transition. And uh, it was very professional. We walked through those uh, agendas, and uh, it was productive. Uh, and how so? How was it productive? Well, that we, we discussed each agenda item, and it was a closed meeting, so I'm not going to divulge some confidences here, but we walked through uh, the agenda items, and uh, we discussed it with the board, and there was motions and uh, the usual... Uh, items uh, or I say sequences that occurs at board meetings and so uh, it was a productive meeting where some motions were passed. Have you had any other discussions or meetings or, or things you could share as well as far as trying to, to find some common ground or, or talk more about this one-on-one -on -one with the mayor? Uh, no I haven't but I certainly have uh, chatted with the mayor at social events uh, but uh, we have not had specific meeting on this specific issue. Uh, you may recall back in the fall, the police board and the Surrey Police Service, uh, we offered to appear before council to answer any questions they may have about the Surrey Police Service, but uh, we were not successful that way. I leave, uh, leave that invitation open if, uh, if the mayor or any council person or council as a whole would have any questions about uh, our portion of the provincial report. Very happy to explain that. I think it's important that uh, there be some clear and comprehensive understanding about what the SPS is all about. Uh, you mentioned the report as well, and we know uh, the mayor has been asking to see the unredacted report. Have you seen that report? Uh, I've seen the unredacted, obviously, um, uh, the RCMP, because we have exchanged unredacted reports. Uh, but I have not seen the unredacted in, uh, in its totality, the provincial report. So... You, you recall going back, and, and we submitted reports, and we submitted supplement, supplementary reports, uh, and that was, that was all good, and we know what either side is uh, proposing, and this has been part of the discussion over the last two and a half years. So 
to to the SPS, uh, it's not a surprise of uh, where the RCMP stands and and some of the material that they put forward, and uh, vice versa. So we're we're well aware. Uh, it's uh, I think the. Uh, council and mayor have to apprise themselves, and of course, city staff have to review the financials and uh, whether they read the unredacted report and that is all they do, or if there's more research by city staff and they put together a corporate report, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, uh, there's much to go over since it is a very comprehensive report. And everybody understands that, but we would like to see some timelines with some finality, some objective, uh, some end goal and uh, a, a diary date associated with that. And when you talk about timelines, and you mentioned this in the open letter, that under the original plan, the, this transition would have been completed uh, last month. It would have been completed in April 2023. Uh, if, if the province and if Surrey does stay with the Surrey Police Service, how much of a delay has this caused? Can you even say what the completion date would be? Yes, uh, I think it's fair to say that it put us back, uh, I'll say, four months. Uh, so uh, with the condition imposed by the province of having a hiring timeline upwards to uh, two and a half, three years, I think they mentioned three years, uh, that's no problem for us. We've done the modeling, and uh, their intention in doing that is so the ecosystem among municipal police services would not be disturbed in, in the lower mainland. And uh, we've done the modeling on that, and it will not be because it'll be slow and smooth and build in momentum. So um, it will take some, uh, some time. This set us back a little bit more, and hopefully we can uh, move forward in a timely fashion in the coming weeks and uh, the next month or two. Are you still hiring staff and officers? We hire strategically, and uh, that is to say we've lost police officers, and uh, we hire to replace those police officers, and uh, especially those that have a special skill set that uh, would be advantageous uh, if Surrey Police Service were to move ahead and also advantageous if we were to demobilize. And most of those skill sets have to do with HR. So um, that's very important to have as far as uh, career planning for, for our people. Right. So, but at this point, given the, that we don't have a firm decision, there's still this kind of limbo. So your, your full complement of officers, though, you're only hiring then if somebody leaves to replace, not adding to the number? Yes, that's correct. So um, by the end of May, the human resource plan, we should, be, we should have been up to 295, and uh, we're, we're about 70, 75 short uh, for a variety of reasons, but one of them is just bypassing the intakes that we should have had in March and May. Uh, we agreed to bypass January because of the election, and then we had a smattering of hirings for March, bypass totally May, and uh, even though we already had offers out there, I think most people can appreciate we have to hire months in advance, especially for those people coming out of province. And so we have uh, about 33 people here that uh, could be deployed, uh, but are not because uh, the May intake wasn't actioned. And so we're in a bit of a pause mode that way. 
All right. And uh, I know you said it was a productive uh, police board meeting yesterday. Um, I, I obviously didn't answer all of the questions or I don't think the letter would have uh, gone out. We wouldn't be reading this letter today. When would you like to see a, a firm decision? Is it to, as soon as possible or is there a date you would like to see? Well, we have to be practical about this, and uh, the people that make the decisions have to have the opportunity to digest the report and ask questions. And so um, I, I'm looking at council meetings, and we know there's a council meeting on the uh, 15th, I believe, or June 5th, uh, then there's one June 19th. Uh, and then there's one in July. Uh, it would be uh, very timely if it was uh, by the end of June, uh, recognizing that people do have to have a look and uh, really examine uh, the issues and the, and the financials. All right. Chief Norm Lipinski, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. You're welcome. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time to check in with Claire Newell, the president and founder of Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. I think this is a really fun topic. I hope you do as well. I always love going over things, and they might seem like common sense to a lot of people, but even the most seasoned travelers I know make mistakes, or maybe not even mistakes, but don't take advantage of all of the things you can do to make travel a little smoother. So I think it's great that we're talking about this today. And I think it's so interesting that you say that, Jill, because I see people who travel really often and they travel the same way and never change. And I see other people who don't travel that often make kind of similar mistakes. So I feel like everyone can learn from this. And yes, for those who are kind of road warriors, some of this will be redundant. You probably do it anyway. But one of the first things I see is um, I'm just shocked. I mean, even the last time I traveled by the line at the ticket counter just to check in. Um, it's even if there are check-in kiosks, but the reality is, is that you should be checking in online if there is any possible way. I mean, unless you have some kind of problem that can't be resolved ahead of time. I know that for certain airlines you can't because you have to have your passport checked at the time or you have to have a ETA, electronic travel authorization double checked before you board that plane because the flight crew are the ones or the gate agents are, are the ones who are supposed to double check that that's been done. Um, but if you are going to be doing it, just have that ticket sent to your phone through text or email. Um, if you don't have any luggage to check in, even better because you can skip the counter and head straight to the security line, you'll likely be called up uh, at the gate before you board just so that they can double check your documentation because you don't have anyone having eyeballs on that ahead of time. Um, but let me tell you, it is so easy. If you do have luggage, you'll need to drop it off. But if you've checked in beforehand, that goes pretty quickly. Uh, and what do you get from, or what do you think the reluctance is? Because you're right, it, it is when you see those long lineups, I do often think, why are you standing in that line? If not for the reasons that you just mentioned, why there is, I guess, a reluctance to do the online check-in? You know, I think it's habit for a lot of people. You know, people who have, have just done it that way for years, they just want that paper copy, they just want someone to do it before them. But the technology has improved so much. I mean, my parents are in their mid-70s and they're doing it, so I know that it can be done, um, even by people who are a little older and not as tech savvy. 
uh, and maybe they could have um, one of their kids or grandkids do it for them. But it just does make that process so much faster when you're getting to the airport. One of the other things that I'm seeing is I'm seeing people not take advantage of technology to speed them through the airport that is available at YVR. It's also available right across Canada. So I just want to talk about those. The first is YVR Express. So this is for booking a security spot when you arrive at the airport and it can be done up to 72 hours prior to departure. It's all online at YVR.ca. And let me tell you, it is super, super handy. Um, if you've got a Nexus card, you don't need to do this because you already have that lineup for Express security. But if you don't, the Nexus lineup right beside it is those people who've actually done this process. So it's speedy, let me tell you. The other thing is for those who are going to the U.S., taking advantage of something called Mobile Passport App. Um, that's what you're looking for if you're downloading this to your smartphone. It's called Mobile Passport App. Please look for that. It's like a blue and it's got MPT on it. This, again, if you do this ahead of time, you're you are speedy going through us customs uh you can go through a lineup that is again right beside nexus rather than going through that long lineup if you don't have a, a, a nexus or you haven't done that mobile passport app and then for anyone coming back to canada arrive can allows you to do advanced declaration before you even land back in canada take advantage of it again if you've got nexus you're speedy you don't have to worry but right beside nexus is that lineup for those people who've done this declaration ahead of time. So you you know that there's the regular lineup, there's all those kiosks, and then there's the Nexus. Well, now there's those for uh, one for people who've actually done the advanced declaration through the Arrive Can app. They're all really straightforward. A little bit of time just, you know, setting up the apps. But man, is it ever worth it? And I'm so glad you brought that up because my dad, who travels a lot, he was telling me last time he came through coming back, he used the Arrive Can app, which I thought, why are you using that? We don't need to use it anymore. And he said, what are you talking about? It was the fastest I've ever gone through customs and coming home. So uh, even little things like that, I had forgotten that if you choose to, you can still use those apps and really get a much quicker experience. Yeah, well, go Jill's dad for using it. <laughs> um, one of the other mistakes, Jill, that I see a lot of people making is actually getting to the airport, having not downloaded all of the things that they might need at the airport. So first of all, the airport's app, but also the airlines, because a lot of airlines use their apps for you to be able to access all sorts of their entertainment rather than the back, um, like a seat back TV. And the other thing is, is that you're using um, downloads on your own device for music, shows, movies, all of this stuff that's going to keep you entertained. Um, it could be eBooks, whatever it might be. So it is super slow uh, at the airports if you're trying to download quickly before your flight. So please make sure you do that. Yeah, it's a good reminder. I've seen people too when you get on the plane and even if you've just forgotten and then realize, oh no, this is uh, this is the entertainment that I was going to use uh, for the flight. Yeah, um, it's such a nightmare. Yeah, Lug luggage and making sure your luggage, you can claim it quickly. Yeah, so this is um, something that I see quite often. I mean, so many bags look the same. The most common color is black. And so uh, if you want to identify it with a little ribbon, a really colorful luggage tag, but also you need to make sure that it's uh, marked both inside and out. And the reason I say that is that often 
through the process, through all of the conveyor belts that go through the airport, if you're checking a bag, sometimes the luggage tags can get stuck and pulled off. So I do recommend that you put something on the inside. If you're doing a really complicated itinerary, just put a manila envelope with uh, open if luggage is lost, and then have the itinerary in there with where you're going to be when. Because if your luggage goes missing and they can get it to you just, say, two days into your trip, you won't have it lost for the entire, say, seven or ten day vacation, um, which is really important. So just uh, make sure you, you do that ahead of time. It's a great idea, a good, a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, what about, again, at your time at the airport and making sure that you make that as enjoyable as possible? Yeah, so I would advise, and I see lots of people forgetting to do this or not even thinking about it, but look at the airports you're doing, either uh, a layover, long layover in, or if you have a, a, a big, long uh, wait, you're getting to the airport well ahead by driving, and you realize, geez, I've got a lot of time, find out if there's uh, an airport lounge that you can buy a day pass for. Lots of airports are offering this as an option. I know at YVR, there are lots of different um, pay pay lounges that you can use. They're anywhere between $20 and $60, and you're going to get Wi-Fi, food, drinks, including liquor, sometimes even showers or a place where you can sleep, like day beds. It can be well worth it if you're stuck for a long period of time. Now, if you find out that you're going to have a long layover because of weather or something, keep in mind that everyone's going to be in the same boat and trying to do that. So as soon as you hear that you might have a long layover because of weather, run to a lounge where this is an option and make sure you get in because often they'll fill up and that's it. No more people are allowed in because everyone's staying until maybe a storm passes or something. All right. Good advice there as well. Now, are you still seeing people uh, not being courteous or not using their manners when it comes to what can be a stressful time for everybody? Well, travel hasn't been um, very easy, especially since the pandemic and and even post-pandemic because there's just so many people. There's so much demand. Airports are long uh, there with long lineups and and because of staff shortages. So I I don't think we'll ever see people with bad manners. Uh, unfortunately, um, there are always going to be those kind of bad apples. But I just feel like it's worth the reminder that I have seen seats changed. I've seen special favors. I've seen hotel upgrades, all just because people are kind and friendly. So make sure you use your your manners right along the way. Gate agents, flight attendants, TSA agents, um, hotel staff, crew staff. I'm telling you, it goes a long way in many cases. And one other point as well, and that is rewards programs. Are they worth it to to be loyal to one or to join as many as you can? Okay, a big mistake is not joining an airline rewards program when booking a flight, even if, if it's like a one of. You know, you're going on some airline because you're in a part of the world that they only operate in. Get those points. You're leaving money on the table. I mean, the, I mean, it's not going to cost you anything. What I would then do is use uh, a company like points.com because they've got programs for like over 100 different programs, whether it's airlines, hotels, grocery stores, and you can actually move them to whichever program you use the most. So don't leave money on the table. Join those rewards programs, even if it's just a one of like one hour long flight that was only a hundred bucks. Let me tell you, it is absolutely worth it down the road. All right. Let's get people traveling. What deals do you have today? 
Well, um, one that people wait for a lot are these um, cruise and stay programs where when uh, the ships are moving from Alaska in the season, say in late September, early October, um, packaged with different stays. They could be Las Vegas, Anaheim, San Francisco, San Diego. The one I've got in front of me is an eight-night Las Vegas cruise and stay that's leaving October 3rd. So it's a five-night cruise sailing from Vancouver to L.A. Then you're transferred to Vegas on a motor coach. Then you have three nights hotel in Las Vegas. And then a flight home, Mm. $6.99. The taxes are $5.29, almost the same, um, but it is such a deal. It's been, uh, there's been a real run on them. I also wanted to share one to Ixtapa, Mexico. The reason I wanted to do this is because a lot of people are in um, planning modes with their companies and taking their fall holidays and booking them. And I would recommend this. I think they're going to get more expensive as we get closer to departure, especially if it's over a long weekend, like if you want Remembrance Day in there or something. So November 7th through until December the 12th, airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. This one comes with a $200 resort credit that you could use, say, at the spa or something. $12.99, the taxes of $5.31. But there's lots of destinations already up for Mexico and the Caribbean uh, and, and even Hawaii. Um, the next one I've got is an eight-night Hawaii cruise that's leaving October 2nd. It's an eight-night cruise sailing from Vancouver across the Pacific. Then you'll hit all four of the uh, most popular Hawaiian islands, ending in Honolulu, 839, taxes of 192. Do we have time for one more? Sure, let's do it. Okay, it's a Malta long stay for those who are looking. Uh, November 1st until November 22nd, the 21 nights accommodation, breakfast every day, and transfers, thirteen ninety nine tax included. Very nice. All right, and those deals and much more on the website. Claire, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Jill. Well, we are getting more reaction today about Tuesday's decision by former Governor General David Johnston. What we're saying is that a public inquiry into the questions of who knew what what they did at what time and what they did with it cannot be discussed in public because to understand that fully you must deal with classified information. So the very process is not possible to get at things that you really want to get at, that people want to get at. Moreover, even if one did that in camera, that interrogation and so on, looking at classified information, you can't report it publicly because that's forbidden by the Security Information Act, and it leads to all the perils I just spoke about, of danger of people's lives, undermining of our systems, and reaching faith with our five eye appointments. What we can do in public, and we can do it, or another inquiry could do, is to take information that is in the public realm, to examine our machinery of government for handling foreign intelligence, and come to some conclusions on how we can do better. And it's very clear to me that we can do better. One only has to look at other jurisdictions around the world dealing with this very alarming and spreading uh, system of foreign influence to know that, that there are ways we can improve. And we will undertake that over the course of the next five months. And Sakopin and Syria will do so. And I'm very anxious that Parliament performs its proper accountability and oversight function to say, we have a really serious problem here that's growing, and it deserves the careful, thoughtful attention of Parliament 
is the most important body. All right, that was just part of David Johnston's announcement yesterday. Joining the show now is Mehmet Toti, Executive Director of the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. I want to talk more about what you personally have experienced, but before we get into that, what is your response when you hear that from David Johnston and outlining part of his reasoning as to why there will not be or does not need to be a public inquiry? Uh, it is stunning and it is absolutely shocking and it is disappointing for me because this issue has been on our uh, public domain since more than five, six months, and there is intense debate. And the just Canadian public uh, expected to get the bottom of this mess, just to figure out what went wrong and uh, how deep this interference, how widespread it is, and what kind of action government has undertaken or is going to undertake whether these actions are adequate to address the issue or not. There are so many questions left unanswered. And just uh, this report or a findings of Mr. Johnson said, we don't need to have a public inquiry. It is shockingly disappointing. Do you think that there would be answers, though, given the, the fact that w we know that classified information, uh, even if it became part of that, it wouldn't be released publicly, it couldn't be released publicly. Would we still, do you think, would we be able to get the answers to those questions uh, that you say, the questions that are still out there? Yes, uh, there, there's a way of doing it, and uh, Canada has done it before. There are a lot of precedents from other jurisdictions as well. It can be closed-door session or otherwise. But most important thing is we have to get the bottom of this mess. And this is an accumulated result of inaction for decades. And this interference and penetration just went into a deep and a deep heart of our core institutions of election. And so we cannot get away with this just to have a public hearing instead of public inquiry. During the public hearing, just we share our stories. We have shared our stories before and we, we, we passed our concerns and, and experience to the government and the parliamentarians since decades. And it's the replica of the same information. And plus, uh, since the leakage of CSIS documents, and there is a growing consensus and awareness in Canadian public to get the bottom of this mess and to figure out what is the rule policy in our system that allows this interference to happen and how, how we can fix it. In order to do that, we have to identify the problems. Do you have concerns as well, given what we've seen uh, happen to people? And I know that uh, there have been documented cases or, or that you have talked publicly about what you have been, uh, contacts that uh, have come to you, phone calls that you've received. Are you concerned that the Chinese government will look at this and consider this a win? Yeah, it is a win and it is uh, the uh, kind of message that uh, uh, celebrated in Beijing today and uh, a Chinese embassy in Ottawa. And uh, just imagine the, the transnational repression of the uh, Communist Party of China went beyond its jurisdiction and it is not limited with the third world countries. Now it is in Canada. 
and reaching out to MPs and reaching out all uh, human rights advocates and uh, defenders like me and threatening our safety and security by hostage taking of our family members and persecuting of, of our family members just because we're advocating our cause just to speak up. And, and it, so, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so we felt that we we left alone again and without any the measures to protect our safety and security and everything just goes uh, with with the design format or new norms of the Chinese government. It is it is simply shocking for me. Can you tell us a little bit about what has happened to you as far as what kind of phone calls have you received? What kind of messages have you been given from the Chinese government? Yeah, whenever when I start a new campaign or initiate any launch any campaign in Canada, that has been the case in 2006 when the Canadian citizen of Uyghur origin, Mr. Hussein Jalil, was abducted in Uzbekistan by the Chinese government and they transferred to China and eventually uh, the sentence for life, I started to advocate for his release. At that time, I started to receive phone calls from the Chinese government and the threat on my safety and a hostage taking of my mother at that time. And uh, as recently as uh, the January 16th, just uh, four months ago, it was just two weeks before the parliamentary vote on the resettlement of 10,000 Uyghur refugees in Canada, I received a phone call from Chinese state police. And at this time, taken hostage of my mother's brother, my uncle, on the phone line, just uh, told me that my mother was dead and the two sisters are dead mm. and my brothers and their children disappeared. And that is the message. And if I continue, I have only one cousin left, and he will he would uh, face uh, he would face the same consequence as my as my mother and the sisters did. And that kind of threat is not unique for me. It is a common and a widespread for all Uyghur Canadians who are speaking up in Canada. And Uyghur Canadians living in Canada, in this free country, under the shadow of Chinese Communist Party's control. And unfortunately, there is no any mechanism in Canada to offer protection. And there is no any legislative process or any administrative tools to protect the human rights dissidents and activists, activists like me. And uh, now... Without public inquiry, and this was the opportunity for us to get to the bottom of this problem and uh, offer some solution for it. And without the public inquiry and just with public hearing, probably we are going to continue like this without any protection for some time to come. And I know others that also say that they have been receiving threats by the Chinese government from the Chinese state are also disappointed with the decision that the rejection of a public inquiry. How do you think a public inquiry would address that, though, or would possibly change that? Yeah, uh, public inquiry at least uh, put all the facts on, on the table and it uh, would give us the opportunity to look at it and identify if there is any loophole in our system that allowed the Chinese interference in our society. 
and uh, the, it gives us the opportunity to review our actions and uh, the measures that we, we have undertaken so far, whether these measures worked or not, if there's any problem between government agencies, and how deep the Chinese infiltration and interference in Canada and how many actors involved, not only, this is not limited with the Chinese consulate officials or diplomats. There are members of Chinese Communist Party's proxy organizations in Canada, just like United Front or other so-called community organizations, all of them, the arms and the legs of the Chinese Communist Party. This would be the opportunity for Canada to learn more about Chinese interference and uh, infiltration. And uh, this is the opportunity for us to figure out what is the best way to go move forward to address this issue. Unfortunately, we are going to miss it. Right. Do you have any confidence that if the public hearings do go ahead, that any of those questions will be answered? Uh, we do our best, and we start our campaign with uh, other uh, right-minded organizations across Canada, and we start to contact with all MPs from all political parties, and we increase our pressure on them, and we should have that public inquiry, and we have to get the bottom of this issue. This, this, is, this is not something that we can escape from it. The problem is already here. And if we have to address the problem, in order to address it, we have to identify what, is, what went wrong. This, is, uh, this process should find answer for what, what went wrong and how we fix it. And do you think, though, and I know that, that you and other groups as well that, that are speaking about this today are, 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 seem to be united and, and feeling very unheard and feeling like this, this is not being addressed. Is there another way that this could be addressed or that to get more attention paid to this, like you said, uh, to figure out exactly who is behind this and to figure out why this is happening and, and I imagine to make it stop? Uh, as you know, this uh, sort of operation cannot be completed without uh, backing up huge financial and uh, financial and human resources. That financial and human resources coming from Chinese Communist Party, and so issue is big. And so we we are not going to stop our our advocacy work to have this uh, push this uh, public uh, hearing or the public uh, inquiry. And there is a momentum, there is a consensus among the Canadian public as well. And for that reason, regardless what is the, the price to pay, and many community organizations and human rights defenders, they already paid the price. Their relatives already paid the price. And in many other jurisdictions, some of them went through the same process, but finally, they introduced the legislation to tackle this issue. And just now, uh, this is the opportunity for our parliament to introduce the Foreign Agent Registry Act or some other jurisdictional uh, the tools. But in order to do that, we have to know the scope of the problem to coordinate the measures to address that issue and how we can uh, form the legislation if we do not know the depth of the problem. And for that reason, public inquiry is must. And look at the result of the public inquiry, and we are at a better position to formulate our new legislation to address this issue. All right. Uh, Mehmet Toti, we'll leave it there for today. I appreciate you joining the show. 
Thank you. Earlier in the show, uh, we played a little mashup of some of Tina Turner's greatest hits. There are many. The uh, star passed away earlier today at the age of 83. Music publicist and commentator Eric Alper is on the line now. Eric, thank you so much for being here. No problem. Happy to do it. Uh, When you heard the news that uh, Tina Turner had passed away earlier today at her home in Switzerland, what memories started coming back to you? Um, how about like 40 of them? Um, the, the ability for her to come from absolute dirt poor of a family and having no hope in reaching any established life to do that and to manage to find, um, the kind of music industry mover and shaker in Ike Turner, who really kind of taught her how to sing, how to act, how to dance how to wow a crowd. Of course, we found out later that he was just an absolute horrible person um, to the nth degree. Um, To have monstrous hits in the 1960s that literally changed music, whether it was River Deep, Mountain High, um, and so many, so many others that um, battled in having hits during a segregated civil rights movement in the United States in the 1960s, where they were still playing to segregated audience of, of, uh, and white radio wasn't even playing her music for the longest time um, to sell out arenas and stadiums with and then without him and then disappear like most artists do. Um, you know, they kind of go down with their career. It's it's hard to sustain one. And then find out that there's this song called What's Love Got to Do With It that's circling around the industry that nobody wanted to, to sing. It went to Cliff Richard, and he said no. Donna Summer turned it down, and all of these people turned it down, eventually getting the Tina Turner. And for somebody like me, and I think for a lot of our listeners, who grew up in the 1980s, to watch on Much Music and MTV this powerful feminist black woman who had spiky hair, a jean jacket, a leather skirt, and high heels, telling men exactly what time it is and what the score is, for her to sell 15 million copies of Private Dancer around the world and ride off of hit after hit after hit um, was astonishing. We will never, ever hear that kind of a story again in the music industry or in film or television, no matter how much they want to sell the dream. She was that dream. She was exactly what people were selling. An extraordinary life, to say the least, and like you just highlighted there. Uh, Did you ever meet her? Um, I've only met her once, and it was during that private dancer tour back in uh, 1986 or 87. Um, and the only thing that she commented on was my hair and how short I was. Uh, <laughs> and I will absolutely take that to the bar for my next drink. <laughs> wow. I, I would imagine, though, even meeting her just once, uh, once more than a lot of people, the energy must have been pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, you just, you, I, it's, it's so it's so hard to be able to imagine this, but before the internet, you had no idea who really the history was of these people, unless you read about it or somebody told you, um, or you, you saw it in one, one of the seven or eight channels that were on the television. And I know I'm going to sound really old, but it's like, it's really easy for people to hear about somebody like Tina Turner and go buy her music at a hit of a button. And that's why she's got, something like right now, three of the top 10 songs on iTunes worldwide. Um, It's the ability to find out all of this information when not a lot of people knew about 
the absolute devastation that she felt being married to Ike Turner until that movie, What's Love Got to Do With It, came out. And then her book, I, Tina, where it was one of the first times that people had heard a woman speak out in the arts about the horrible abuse that her husband um, held upon her. And so I think just as an icon and speaking out, um, that certainly changed a lot of people. Um, it certainly changed me to know that, you know, the, this is a, this is not what to do. Sometimes you have to find out these things from other people. And I didn't realize either. I, I knew about uh, her relationship with Ike Turner and, and things that were covered in the movie and such, but I didn't realize that even later on in life uh, that, that she had she had such pain in her life in that both of her children died bef- yeah. in, in uh, 2018 and 2022. It's just uh, what a, and again, what an am- amazing thing that she accomplished, but so much pain in her life as well. Yeah, you know, especially when, um, you know, right right from the get-go where, um, you know, she was a little a little kind of, you know, popular in, in growing up um, in Tennessee. But then when she moved to St. Louis, she was kind of, you know, she, she just had a really hard life. I mean, you go kind of through some of the stories that, I, that are going to be available today, um, just about how how abusive Ike were, was and how her boyfriends treated her and, and how that absolute tragi- tragedy was throughout her whole life where she was always told no, where she had that death around her. She had the, the pain and anguish around her. It almost made it a little bit more palatable when she was on stage looking into the eyes of 45 people or 70,000 people knowing that as she would she was doing exactly what she was put on the earth to do. And what do you think was it about? I mean, her stage presence, amazing. The way she would she would perform in concert. She was she was so talented, but also defined her entire life as well by her looks. Whether it, like you mentioned, the spiky hair, her her style. It, it seemed like like she was defined in in so many different ways. Yeah, and, and especially because that's what you have to kind of do when you're in the music industry or anything in the arts is you have to separate yourself from from the the other rousing, electrifying performers that just don't make it. Um, there are so many things that work against you. It's the right people, the right time, the right song, the right moment, the right clubs. And so with every little step that she took, she realized that she just has to get better and better and become that superstar that she ended up becoming um, where she could actually take command of that stage where she never reeled anything in. She never held anything back, um, even though that her personal life um, was was really damaging the moment that she got off the stage. But when she was on the stage, that that world was hurt and you couldn't you couldn't do anything about it. Is there a song of hers? that Do you have a favorite Tina Turner song? Um, you know, it's it, I, I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> really bizarre, um, but I'm a huge Ships Creek fan. That show, and um, there's one of the characters sings "Simply the Best" to um, to his lover um, in the in the on the TV show to Dan Levy. Um, so that kind of made me realize just what an amazing amazing song it was. But that Private Dancer album still puts me back into when I was a 14-year-old, um, learning about life for the first time in a real meaningful way of, of everything. So I, I would say just the greatest hits from the 60s and 70s right up to Private Dancer 
um, is just amazing. She leaves such a legacy of music that we all now have access to. She certainly does. Eric, as always, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Well, I think we all know that the kind of stereotype of being a student, maybe you don't have a lot of extra money, you eat noodles because they're cheap, maybe you eat other things because they are less expensive, but a new international study shows that poor eating habits while attending a post-secondary school can, in fact, lead to a lifetime of illness. Joining the show now to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Joan Botteroff, UBC Okanagan professor in uh, the School of Nursing, we're just going to kind of, we're just going to re-establish contact with uh, the doctor to talk about this. So this is a study that is really being put out as a cautionary tale, saying a person's poor eating habits that are established during post-secondary studies can contribute to future health issues. Those issues, including obesity, respiratory illnesses, and depression. This was an international study, and Dr. Botaroff was is one of the researchers who published this multi-site study, again, looking at the eating habits of university students. It took into account 12,000 medical students from 31 universities in China that participated in the study aimed to determine the association between eating behaviors, obesity, and various other diseases. And again, finding that poor eating habits while in post-secondary school can lead to poor eating eating habits and medical issues later down later on in life. So uh, we have re-established contact now with Joan Vothoroff and again, a UBC Okanagan professor in the School of Nursing. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, delighted. Um, thanks for inviting me. Well, I just read a little bit about where the study took place, and we're t- this was medical students uh, from 31 universities. Uh, am I correct? It was 31 universities in China that participated? That's correct. That's correct. It was part of a, a much uh, larger study about some of their health behaviors, and this part focused on their eating behaviors. But, you know, what we find is that... Um, Although this study was conducted in China, um, the the eating behaviors that we observed among these students is not all that different from what we see uh, across Canada universities, including some of the ones right here in British Columbia. And what did it find then about, or I guess first, can you kind of define what we're talking about when we, we say poor eating habits? What were students eating? So they're eating, you know, ha- Fast food in, in most cases, like high-calorie food, sugary food, um, you know, students are busy. And um, so they're eating what's available to them and that they can get a hold of in a quick way. And whether that's in a vending machine or in a cafeteria, quite often that ends up being high-calorie, high-fat, high-sugar kind of uh, food. And I found it interesting that this is looking at post-secondary school in that I've always thought that maybe eating habits or bad eating habits probably or, or would develop earlier than that. But I find it interesting, again, that, that this is something that happens at that age and then making that link to the fact that, it, that in some cases it can continue. Mm-hmm. Well, if we think about it, uh, you know, university students have left home often for the first time. So they are, there's less supervision um, and family meals provided. 
Um, and so they're really, for the first time, on their own in terms of of their food choices. And um, in our settings here in BC, many of our students live in residence, although not all. Um, and so for students living in residence, um, you know, they're limited to what's available on their campuses. Uh, and for those living off campus, perhaps for the first time, they're trying to figure out how to make their own meals and often not having a lot of time to do that. And so resorting to quick, fast food. Hmm. And did it also look at, like you said, if they're living on campus, then then maybe you are a student who you're only really getting access to the school cafeteria or the, the foods on campus. So is, is it too, too oversimplifying it to make the link that if more healthy options were made available and were affordable, maybe students wouldn't develop those poor eating habits or make those poor choices? Yeah, that's exactly what we think. And so... Um, you know, I'm at UBC, and at UBC, it's been a priority over the last few years to really create a, a healthier food environment for our students so that there are some healthy choices. You know, when I first, um, a few, quite a few years ago on campus, when you went up to a vending machine um, late at night or after the cafeteria closed, all you could get were chips and chocolate bars. Um And so you didn't really have a lot of choice. And so increasingly, we're trying to make healthier choices available to students, regardless of what time of day it might be, Um, although there's certainly limitations to that, but trying to really provide those healthier choices so that there is that food available and also trying to make them more affordable for students, because that's the other issue is that many students can't afford you know, expensive, healthy foods. And so they resort to, you know, the more junk food versions that are cheaper, but, you know, really calorie dense and not much food value. Right. And you you touched on that, the the affordability part of it, too, that the, those do tend to be the cheaper options. And oftentimes the, the student budget, uh, that's that's what it allows. Uh, I, I'm guessing it didn't go into the details of that, too, though. Maybe after you've graduated, once maybe you're get you're employed and you have more disposable income, if your habits then change again, if you're able to afford better food, do you start eating better? Well, we hope that that's the case and we would really love students to really uh, begin to to establish those eating patterns you know while they're students because I think you know the you know we used to think that university students are like starving students and that's kind of the norm but Mm -hmm. it's it's not a good norm because we know that you know if students are not eating properly they actually don't perform that well academically and it's it sets a course for other health problems. So, you know, the more that we can support them in developing those healthier eating habits right from the time that they leave home um, and then into their careers, they can take those forward and then hopefully into their own families in the future. And I think we can all uh, agree that uh, we know that eating chocolate bars and high calorie foods, it's not great uh, for if you're uh, getting on the scale. It's not uh, mm-hmm. a healthy thing when it no. comes to, to putting weight on. But I, I was curious about the other illnesses that this research links to and, and maybe things that we don't often 
make a direct connection, whether it's a res- respiratory illnesses or depression. How do, how were those kind of how did those come up in the study? Yeah, so we asked students about their health history and um, in relation to um, diagnosis of various chronic diseases, infectious diseases, and there was a, a tool to assess uh, mental health as well. And so these obesity-related eating behaviors were associated with those things. And we've always known that obesity is related to various chronic diseases. And, and we also have some current evidence to suggest that uh, obesity is also linked to um, infectious diseases. And we saw that in and during the pandemic, during COVID, you know, people who were overweight or obese had much more severe uh, experiences with COVID and were more likely to end up in hospital and that kind of thing. And, you know, we haven't entirely worked out the mechanisms here, but it does appear that obesity does interfere with uh, immune response, uh, makes it weaker. And so, at least people more susceptible to things like infectious diseases. And we also know that the extra weight on people's um, bodies can also interfere with their lung function. And again, that explained to some extent their experiences during COVID. Hmm. And you mentioned that this might be the first time for a lot of students as well, that maybe they're cooking their own meals or doing their own grocery shopping. Is that something also, or, or I, I don't know that you looked at the differences, but there, there are students, I'm sure, that uh, that learn that, whether their parents are teaching that or they're, they're taking classes in school that learn that. I, I, mean, I, would, I would think that if you're learning that earlier on, maybe you wouldn't fall into this kind of trap of, of buying, again, those high-calorie prepackaged <laughs> processed foods. Yeah, exactly. And and we're certainly have programs available on our campus to help students learn about how to cook foods, particularly simple like three ingredient recipes and also with with ingredients that are not expensive and also easy to access. So we are trying to support uh students in um in preparing their own food. But sometimes students just don't have time to do that because they're working part-time, they're studying full-time, you know, they're writing assignments. And so it really does need to be something that's quick and easy to prepare. And also sometimes, especially on our campuses um, here in Kelowna and to some extent in Vancouver, access to grocery stores where they can actually buy affordable food is often a little bit challenging. Mm. So we need to keep in mind all of these things as we try to support students uh, when they're in post-secondary education. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing the study results. They're very, very interesting. So thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome.